welcome back to the Spartan History Podcast. This is episode 32, Sparta, Embassies and Enemies. The nature of power has been something dwelt on by philosophers both ancient and modern. With qualities both tangible and intangible, subjective but also objective, it remains an elusive concept defying any attempt at an overarching definition. Of course, I'm referring to the potency of a nation or city-states, overall prestige and the relative strength of its might, not what makes the light bulb glow when you flick a switch. However you might like to define it, with the formation of the Peloponnesian League, Sparta now had power. If we take the Homeric legends at face value, Hellas had not seen power, such as this since the Mycenaean Age and the alliance King Agamemnon was at the head of. If we dismiss Homer, then it's likely Greece had never seen such power prior. It's the type of force they could project, within reason, wherever they saw fit. As we'll see in this episode, they do precisely that. Laid out for us in the histories, Uncle H tells us a story about the Spartans launching a transmarine expedition to the island of Samos. Having fallen under the rule of the tyrant Polycrates, some rebellious Samians sought and were given Spartan aid. Typically light on the detail, Herodotus doesn't really flesh this story out, but with the help of some fantastic modern analysis, we'll put some meat on the bone of this incredibly fascinating facet of Spartan history. At the same time, we'll introduce Samos, it being one of my favourite places in Greece, and pivotal to this late archaic stage of Sparta's story. Power also, by its very nature, has a way of self-projection too. No polis, not even Athens in her prime, could bring to bear anywhere near the sheer amount of might available to the Peloponnesian League, and more importantly, to Sparta. And that power was being noticed in the broader Mediterranean neighbourhood. To the east, in Anatolia, sat the Lydian Empire, which in the mid-sixth century was under the dominion of King Croesus. Now Croesus is today a byword for wealth and opulence, but along with happiness, money also can't always buy you freedom, especially if there was someone else more powerful who could take your money by force and deprive you of your liberty. Croesus had this particular problem in spades, where on his eastern border, an emergent and expansive Persian empire was looking to add Lydia to its ever-growing list of satrapies. Hemmed in, the Lydian king turned west, and more specifically, turned to Sparta for succour. For better or for worse, Croesus had a long-standing relationship with certain Greek Poleus on the mainland, and besides, had a large population of them within his own empire via the control of the many coastal Ionian and Aeolic cities within his domain. In common with Sparta, he also had a special connection with the sanctuary at Delphi, and was one of the very prominent early benefactors of the site. Predominantly independent as the Greeks were, polis by polis, it made sense that Croesus would consult with the Spartans for alliance against the Persians, with them now being the preeminent military might on the Greek mainland. As you'll soon see, it didn't end up amounting to a great deal when all was said and done, but the story speaks volumes to Sparta's increasing prestige and importance on the world stage. That the Lydian king chose to parley with them alone for Greek support against Persia makes it clear it was at least nominally believed the Lacedaemonians spoke for all of Greece. Along with taking a look at the particulars of Laconian and Lydian communication, I'll also take the chance to introduce the latter into our narrative, in brief at least. But first, we need to address the elephant in the room, or in this case, in the peninsula. Argos. Homer used several terms to refer to the Greeks. Most preponderantly, they were referred to as the Archaeans, but the second most used title was that of the Argives. The former term is more geographical in connotation, but Argives, although denoting an area of the Peloponnese, was more genealogical in its intended impression. The Argolid, as it's known, was one of, if not the seat of Mycenaean power in the late Bronze Age period. With both Mycenae and Tiryns located within its territories, both renowned for the Temple Palace archaeology unearthed in the last 150 years that was synonymous with the period, between these two places lie the site of Argos. It too was clearly an important stronghold in the Bronze Age, but due to its continued settlement, has little to show of its early, pre-Dark Age history. Like Sparta, the Argolid was conquered, or at the very least settled, by the incoming Dorians. Argos was a place of mythology, being the birthplace of the hero Perseus, whose story we looked at way back in Episode 9. 
In the generation before the Trojan War, the king of Argos was Adrastus, who led the ill-fated expedition known as the Seven against Thebes. This war was the subject of the Theban epic cycle, that save for a few fragments and mentions we know very little about. Later, King Diomedes ruled the city during the Trojan War, and was at the head of its armed contingent before the walls of Troy. The archaic citizens of Argos had the pedigree of heroes in their history, and saw themselves every bit the equals of the Spartans. They are understood to be pivotal to the development, or even instrumental for that matter, of the hoplite mode of warfare that revolutionised combat in pre-classical Greece. Barely 60 kilometres distant from Sparta, it was only natural that these two bold city-states would clash. They had come to blows in the past, as previously discussed, but the 6th century was where Sparta and Argos came together, in a series of conflicts that decided their classical power and influence. The last great piece of the Peloponnesian puzzle will be put in place as we dive into the history of ancient Argos and scrutinise their far from amicable relationship with Sparta. So, an incredible amount to get through this time. Boil the kettle, get a nice warm cup of something, and strap yourself in. Today, outside of academia, Argos doesn't have a firm place in the popular understanding of ancient Greece. However, like Thebes, it was central to the mythology of the Hellenes. We can see that borne out by the numerous works of theatre that had their setting in either of these two places, and furthermore, by the sheer amount of legend that had its genesis there too. Unlike Thebes though, Argos wasn't just a place where legend unfolded, it was also the place, and indeed the land, of literal legend. I'm going to dwell on this particular semantic extensively, as I don't want to understate how important the name Argos, whether city-state or land, was to the minds of the ancient Greeks. It's exceedingly easy to get lost or caught up in the Athenocentric narrative of ancient Greek history, and justifiably so, given the preponderance of surviving source material from that polis. However, in trying to build the Spartan story into as complete a picture as possible without Athenian influence, I believe it's essential we do the same with the other relevant cities we come across. The noun Argos and the adjective Argives appears 217 times within the Iliad and Odyssey. I didn't count them personally, but the article I read in seemed credible enough. Only six of those references was Homer referring to the ancient city of Argos, which rested along the banks of the Xerius River. For the other 211 uses of those terms, Homer uses them to broadly define what we'll call heroic Greece, and not a specific geographic region per se. The Rhapsode's use of this collective term is most stark when you see it used in combination with their main antagonists, like in Book 9 when we read, Why must the Argives make war on the Trojans? Certainly, the men of Argos, the city, were not the only Hellenes making war against the Trojans, and in this instance, the adjective is collectively applied to all of the Hellenes fighting at Troy. In other instances, it seems as though Argos is used to denote the personal fiefdom of Agamemnon, as in Book 2 of the Iliad, where it reads, And Thystes, that is Agamemnon's uncle, in his turn left it to Agamemnon to bear, that over many islands and all of Argos he should be lord. Agamemnon was left to bear a grand scepter which symbolised his prestige and hereditary right to rule, as all Archean kings bore similar scepters, each signifying their own right to kingship. The many islands and all of Argos is clearly a reference to all of Greece. Here once again, Argos is home to the heroic Argives. Homer is explicit when defining a geographic place. There is no ambiguity. Mycenae is always the dominion of Agamemnon, and when Argos is referred to as a city, that city's king is always Diomedes. So we see in the epic tradition two Argoses, one, the city, and the other, the home of the Argives heroic Argos. It's fascinating because when it comes to the other two collectives used by Homer to depict the allied Greek forces, that of Archaeans and Danaeans, he uses the former only twice in noun form, that is Archaea, and the latter, Danaea, not at all. Even our dear Helen, Helen of Sparta, is more often than not referred to as Helen of Argos. In Book 6, as Hector heads into his brother's apartments, he finds that Helen of Argos was sitting among her women. Of course, this is no mistake by the generally very precise Homer. Any reader of the Iliad is under no doubt that the princess hails from Sparta, 
but this mythical Sparta was part of heroic Argos. It isn't explicitly mentioned, but I assume, in much the same way that Sparta worked hard to tie itself into the cultural heritage of the mythic age, that Argos was in its own way no less inclined to pursue a similar policy. Both were prominent Dorian cities, whose Archean or Argive past was an important connection to establish legitimacy of their own standings within Greece. Both cities, Argos and Sparta, were surely intrinsically aware of their status as interlopers to the Peloponnese. In Pausanias' description of Greece, the author goes to great lengths describing the many monuments, shrines, and temples dedicated to the mythic past of Argos, and the stories given by his guides bear out the great amount of pride the second century Argives had in their mythical narrative. It would be, as it was in Sparta, a practice that stretched back to the Archaic Age and the general awakening of Greek cultural heritage post-Dark Age. The works of Homer were somewhat canonical to that heritage, and the prominence of the Argive name within them was surely not lost on the Greeks, let alone the individual Argives. Founded on a fertile, flat, and broad Argolid plain, the city's legendary founding king was called Argus, a name Strabo describes as meaning field, possibly in relation to the plain itself. Archaeologists posit continual habitation of the site from around the 3000 BCE mark, and if you could see the region itself, you would understand why. The site had not one, but two hills that could be considered a necropolis, both having extensive remains from the early Bronze Age right through to the Iron. Lying on the Argolid Plain, some 256 square kilometres of, for Greece at least, relatively flat land that was fertile and well watered by the Xeres River. This watercourse skirted across the north and then worked south along the city's eastern boundaries. From there, it emptied into the Argolic Gulf, which was barely five kilometres distance from Argos. An abundance of arable land, easily defensible hilltops, ready access to the sea and fresh water all conspired to mark Argos the site of one commensurate with human habitation. But, despite Homer's obvious respect for the noun and the adjective, the settlement here was a second-rate power in the Bronze Age, being overshadowed by nearby Mycenae and Tyrans. After the Bronze Age collapse, as in most other regions of Greece, the area was denuded of its population via the privation and instability of the Dark Age. It was, however, during this time, that the myths surrounding heroic Argos began to spring up. The royal line of Argos, known as the Anachid dynasty, after the original name of the Xerius River, ruled the city for nine consecutive kingships. The last king of this dynasty, Palasgos Galanor, was prompted to hand over his hereditary domain to the exiled Libyan king, Danus. Danus had fled his African homeland with his fifty daughters due to an issue with a neighbouring king named Egyptus, also his twin brother. Conveniently, or not as it turned out, Egyptus had fifty sons, whom he contrived to marry off to his fifty nieces. Deciding to have none of it, Danus shipped himself and his daughters off to Argos and made themselves suppliants of King Galanor. The famous Athenian tragedian, Aeschylus, tells this story in his aptly titled The Suppliants. Once granted asylum, the incumbent King Galanor received an oracle that convinced him to renounce his throne in favour of Danus. Pretty simple, really. This Danus is where the Homeric term of Danaean stems from, showing once again how central, in this case the city of Argos, was to the mythology. Perseus too was born in Argos, and as a babe was promptly banished, along with his mother, by his grandfather, King Acrisius. Also looked at in episode 9, he was one of the premier monster hunters of the day. By the time of Troy, Argos was the domain of King Diomedes, who led the city's forces against the Trojans. Like most of the other kings, post the fall of Troy, Diomedes too had difficulties returning to his homeland, and actually never made it. On his return journey, he was blown off course, and after some delightful misadventures, wound up in Italy. Here he founded many cities, and eventually suffered one of four recorded deaths, or even, as another legend goes, had an apotheosis after being granted immortality by Athena. Apart from archaeological indications of Argive consolidations of the plain surrounding the city, we know very little indeed about the early history of archaic Argos. What we do know, and I use that term very loosely indeed, begins with the reign of Phidon during the 7th century. At least that is where we will start the proper historic narrative of the city. For transparency, there is mention of a mid-8th century conflict between Sparta and Argos in Pausanias, 
but it is generally dismissed by most academics on grounds of the little regional connections held by the two at so early a period. Phidon, like the Spartan kings, could trace his lineage back to the Heraclidae. Namely, he was a 10th generation descendant of Taminus, who in turn was the great-great-great-grandson of Heracles. That Phidon's challenge to burgeoning laconic power was so significant should come as no surprise in that vein. In legend, the Peloponnese was the personal fiefdom for the Scions of Heracles. We should view the conflicts between Sparta and Messenia, Sparta and Argos, as not just grabs for land and resource, but also should keep in mind that they had an extremely strong religious significance too. For the Greeks, there was little difference between what was myth and what was religion. Reigning throughout the first half of the 7th century, he was widely considered to have been a tyrant. In other words, he took the throne through unconstitutional methods. We know nothing, aside from his apparent connection to Heracles, about his upbringing or pedigree. Even his life and reign are opaque, being more a bullet-point list of greatest hits rather than a semi-coherent narrative. To my mind at least, he is an Argive like Hergus, a singular liminal figure, a revolutionary, a lawgiver, and a commander. Someone who, for convenience's sake, is lumped with the responsibility of some long past, largely forgotten, societal upheaval and recovery. The Battle of Hisii, which we've looked at sporadically before, and extensively in episode 20, is largely accepted as the match that lit the flame of the Second Mycenaean War. Pausanias is the only source we have for this battle, and it was no doubt told to him by one of the many people he consulted when travelling through the Argolid. Aside from it being a crushing defeat for the Spartans, we know nothing else concrete, and the surrounding chronology, despite making sense, isn't exactly dripping with historical certainty. It occurred in the year 669, which fits with the life of Phidon, but its location for a conflict between Argos and Sparta is tough to reconcile. Hisii is situated 15 kilometres, or roughly 10 miles, southwest of Argos. Tegea is around about the same distance once again to the southwest. Now, as we learnt in the last episode, Sparta didn't bring Tegea into compliance until the first half of the 6th century at the earliest. What was a Lacedaemonian army doing so deep into hostile territory at this period, especially when they had only recently conquered the fertile Permissus Valley and enslaved its Mycenaean population, who were restive, to say the least? The defeat, it's assumed, weakened the Spartan state enough that her indentured population rose up in revolt. The Mycenaeans were aided during this conflict by the city of Argos, with Phidon as military commander. The events at Hisii also led to Phidon assisting the minor city-state of Pisa with ousting the Eleans from custodianship of the Olympic festival, the latter place having relied heavily on Spartan support prior. We looked at it also in the last episode, and the reacquisition of Olympia by Alice. Aristotle credits Phidon with the division of property and citizen numbers, setting down strict laws for how inheritances were passed down. He also instituted a system of weights and measures that was used widely across the Peloponnese before the advent of currency in the early 6th century. Considered the first tyrant of Hellas, he is imagined as the inspiration for other tyrannies that sprang up in the vicinity of Argos and in the wake of Phidon's reign. Namely, Kypselus of Corinth, Theagenes of Megara, and lastly, Orthagoras of Sicyon. His death is believed to have occurred in the year 660 BCE while he was embroiled in some factional warfare within Corinth, where the aforementioned Kypselus had recently formed his own tyranny. Pausanias indicates that the loss of their commander severely weakened the Argive forces, which in turn struck a blow for the Mycenaeans who relied heavily on Argive support in their war against Sparta. Concurrently, this knocks Argos out of the Spartan story until the mid-6th century BCE. Quasi-mythical lawgiver and general, or the genuine article. Phidon's story is attractive but extremely elusive in its foundation, much the same as Lycurgus's is for Sparta. Historians certainly have some serious doubt about his authenticity, as do I. For some, the traditional and protracted enmity between Sparta and Argos is historical fact. For others, it is merely a convenience projected from a much later date to plug a hole, or in this case, a yawning gap in the Argive narrative. I'll draw your attention to the most contemporary sources of the period, Herodotus and Thucydides. Both are silent on any conflict between Sparta and Argos pre-600. Further to their silence, the three great archaic, laconic poets, Tertius, Alcman and Topanda, 
all have nothing to say about Phidon or Hisii. All the works of these authors are extremely fragmentary to be fair, but Tertius in particular dealt heavily with war and politics in the era of the Second Mycenaean War. As far as I can best discern, there isn't a single direct reference to pre-6th century Spartan and Argive enmity in the surviving works of the logographers, sophists, philosophers, tragedians, and comedians of the 5th century. We even have some surviving fragments of an Argive poetess named Telesilla, who lived in the early classical era. She wrote about, among other things, Argive and Spartan hostilities, but nothing as early as the time of Hisii or Phidon. Whether or not we can safely rule out these events isn't for me to say, but it should be maintained with some suspicion at the very least. We'll turn now to the earliest conflict between the two cities mentioned by Herodotus and Thucydides, the so-called Battle of Champions. It happened in or around the year 546, a time when Spartan hegemony within the peninsula had increased from two to three-fifths through alliance with Alus, Tegea, Corinth and Sicyon. Fought on the coastal plain of Thyrea, an area of exceptional fecundity that sat equally distant from Argos to the north and Sparta to the southwest. It's believed that in the years preceding the battle, Sparta had wrested control of the plain from Argos, which, following the successes of the century before, was in somewhat of an adhere in its fortunes at this stage. The loss of such arable land inspired the Argives' forces to march out and meet the Spartans on the field of battle. According to Herodotus, the commanders of the two forces in conference came to a decision that the battle would be decided by 300 hand-picked champions of each army, a significant number to be sure. The rest of the forces were to march to their respective homes, lest they see their champions getting the worst of it and become driven to intervene. With the term set, the armies marched home and the champions sat at each other with vigour and alacrity. At the battle's end, only three soldiers of the original 600 were left alive. Two Argives, Elsinore and Chromios, and one Spartan, or three of these. The historian tells us that even these two would have perished had not night fallen. Believing they'd carried the day, the two men of Argos returned to their home city, but the Spartan, who was heavily wounded and apparently needed to use broken spears as crutches, remained on the field. Two or three of these, the Argives had fled, and he was the sole occupier of the battleground. He thus stripped his enemies of armour and erected a victory trophy on the site. As prearranged, both forces met again the following day. The Argives presented their case as victors, as did the Spartans. The former, because they had the greater number of survivors, the latter, because their enemy fled and left them in control. I take the Spartan side personally. Considering their behaviour in later battlefields, especially Thermopylae, they would be willing to fight to the last, and are never out of the fight until utterly defeated. Unable to reach an accord, the two armies decided to settle the dispute the old-fashioned way, by a general engagement. Herodotus goes on to say that the battle continued for some time, with terrible losses sustained by both sides, but ultimately, Sparta emerged the victor, and this time, there could be no dispute. Afterwards, the Argives, who had by tradition always wore their hair long, began to cut it short, making it sacrilegious to grow it long, or for women to wear gold until the Thyrera was recovered. Rest assured, fellow laconophiles, the Argive men had short hair for a very long time afterwards, and their womenfolk were unadorned by guilt too. In contrast, the Spartans adopted a new custom. Whereas they had always worn their hair short, they now began to grow it long. The same long hair that was being oiled before battle began on the third day of Thermopylae, an occurrence that shocked the great King Xerxes when he heard about it. As for all three of these, the sole survivor of the Battle of Champions on the Spartan side, he apparently committed suicide due to the guilt he felt in surviving when so many of his comrades had fallen, something the two Spartan survivors of Thermopylae share in common with him. With this victory, and the prior discussed Peloponnesian League alliances, Argos was truly hemmed into its home range on the Argolid plain. We'll leave them alone here, but make no mistake, this isn't the last time they'll pop up in our story as it progresses. King Cleomenes, who will be the central focus of our next episode, fought a series of bloody and ruthless wars against them too. But for now, it is enough to learn something of the Argive story, and how they fit into our current timeline. Before we get into the next major event involving the Spartans, I'd like to take the chance to focus in on a few of the characters that were actively shaping events from within Laconia. By looking at other regions in detail, and as they pertain to Spartan affairs, 
I've glossed over some Lacedaemonians that deserve particular mention. First, let's turn to Helon, a figure right on the border of historical Sparta. Fittingly, his name translates to something akin to precipice, edge, or even verge. He was a firm member of a group known as the Seven Sages of Ancient Greece. A loose collection of the 7th and 6th century worthies, who had little to do with each other apart from contemporaneously occupying a similar era. The list could often vary depending on the source, but Helon, along with Thales of Miletus, were always included in their number regardless. The first recorded mention we have of the sages comes from the not-so-secret laconophile, Plato, in his dialogue called the Protagoras. The great philosopher wasn't alone in his admiration of Sparta. Many of his contemporaries and successors were also great admirers of the Peloponnesian city. It's often the case that people who are raised within the freedoms of a broad democracy use that freedom to find fault with it. In turn, they tend to admire the amount of control and consistency displayed by more autocratic or fundamental neighbours. Such things occur within our own democracies today. For Plato, Xenophon and others, it went a little bit further than that. It was personal. After all, it was the much-vaunted Athenian democracy that put Socrates to death in a turn of loose democratic fancy, and moreover, saw disaster after atrocity perpetrated by the fickle mob crowding around the Nix Hill. Plato writes in his Protagoras the following in relation to his admiration of Sparta, referring to the seven sages. They all emulated and admired and were students of the Spartan education. Could tell their wisdom was of this sort by the brief but memorable remarks they each uttered. For Plato and many others, the Spartan way of speaking in a clipped, militaristic fashion wasn't a sign of coarseness, it was a sign of intelligence. Being able to say much with as few words as possible, an economy of speech. I wish I could learn how to apply that. At any rate, details on Helon's life and philosophy are very few and far between. Believed to have been born around the 600 BCE mark, it is recorded that he served as one of the five annually elected ephors in the year 556. Up until that point, the ephors were responsible for the morals and behaviours of the citizenry at large. It is said that Helon was the first to tie the ephorate to the kingship and have them lay the heavy hand of judgment upon the royal prerogative. Also, as we saw in the previous episode, from around 600 to 550, Sparta's policy towards her neighbours changed. Turning from one of outright conquest to alliance through partial hegemony and relative harmony. Helon, quite possibly for lack of a better option, is often credited with this shift in Spartan foreign policy. What is clear is that upon his death he was given heroic honours by his people, and as Pausanias records in Book 3 of his description of Greece, a Haroon was set up in his honour within Sparta. This is supported by the excavation of a 6th century marble relief from the region, which has an inscription bearing Helon's name. It's plausible that the narrative I had laid down thus far could still hold true. Perhaps the defeat at the Battle of Fetters against Tegea gave the Spartans pause in their ideas of conquest, and it was the will and steady hand of Helon that guided them down a different path. A papyrus, admittedly of questionable authenticity, says that Helon attended to King Anaxandritus on campaign in 556 BCE as well. Two ephors were supposed to be accompanying the king on campaign, so the date is the most reliable one for the ephorate of Helon. We have nothing of his writings or possible works extant, but a 2nd century author by the name of Diogenes Laertes recorded some sayings that were apparently from Helon. A couple were, Do not let one's tongue outrun one's senses, and Prefer punishment to disgraceful gain, for the one is painful but once, but the other for one's whole life. Both extremely Spartan in nature, whether, like Plutarch's apothegms, they are purely apocryphal or not, I'll leave for you to decide. There is an inscription found on the bath of the seven sages, located in Ostia, the port of Rome, that says of Helon, he taught how to fart silently. Surely tongue-in-cheek, but I can imagine a Spartan Pythonomus punishing his young agogic students for bouts of loud flatulence. As for the kings who ruled Sparta during the 6th century, on the argued side we have Leon, or Lion in English, imagined to have ruled from 590 to 560. Aside from fighting a series of stalemates against Tegea, we know nothing else. 
Plutarch recorded three sayings that were supposed to have been his utterances. The one I like best reads as follows. When asked what sort of city one should live in to live safely, Leon, son of Eurycrates, said, One whose inhabitants will possess neither too much nor too little, and where justice will be strong and injustice weak. His Europonted co-king was Agisicles, who, aside from fighting the same wars against Aegea, we also know nothing about. His reign is believed to have been from 580 to 550. Plutarch has left us with two of his sayings. My personal favourite is, When asked how anyone could rule the citizens safely without having a bodyguard, Agisicles said, By ruling them in the way that fathers do their sons. Which is kind of funny, because Spartan fathers practically abandoned their sons to the state in an early age. Succeeding Agisicles to the Europonted throne was Ariston, or best man in English, who ruled from 550 to 515 BCE. Living up to his name, this king was apparently lauded within his domain. Ariston's life ties in wonderfully to an important folktale of archaic Sparta. There was, perhaps in the period of the king's youth, a well-born couple within Sparta who had a daughter. Normally a cause for joy and celebration in any household, but in this instance, we are told that the baby girl was distressingly plain to look at. The child's nurse, likely a helot woman, had the bright idea of taking the babe to the shrine of Helen, located at nearby Therapne. There, the nurse laid the little girl at the feet of Helen's cult statue and prayed to the now deified former princess of Sparta to rid the child of her ugliness. After some time, so the story goes, an apparition of Helen appeared before the pair and stroked the baby girl's hair lovingly. Thereafter, she grew to be one of the most beautiful women Sparta had ever raised, a fitting mother-in-waiting for the next generation of Spartan warriors. In time, she married, and married well. The only problem for her and her husband was that he had a friend who, despite being married twice, had failed to as of yet produce any offspring. Ordinarily, this might not have been of too much note, save for the fact that the friend just so happened to be King Ariston himself, for whom reproduction was a matter of state. We aren't told how exactly, but Ariston acquired his friend's wife as his own through some low trick, not exactly living up to his name's definition there. Ten months later, a baby was born by Ariston and his ill-gotten new wife. For some reason, the king declared the child illegitimate, but many years later, and possibly because there was no better option, rescinded the claim of illegitimacy so that the son could inherit the throne. This boy was called Demiratos, and his birth and life will form a large part of our next episode's story, as he was co-king with Cleomenes. Lastly for Ariston, Plutarch assigned three of his sayings to the Europonted king, and my favourite is the following. As some Athenian was reading a funeral eulogy in praise of men who had been killed by Spartans, Ariston said, What then do you think was the quality of our men who defeated them? Hmm. On the Archaeid side, Ariston had as his co-king Anaxandridas, who ruled from around 560 to 524. The co-reign of these two kings oversaw the establishment of the Peloponnesian League, as we understand it from the previous episode. Anaxandridas, like his co-king, also had some succession issues, with no issue coming from his first wife. Apparently, the ephorate demanded that the king take a second wife to ensure succession. We can detect the influence of Helon here, as this new wife was a relative of the sage, that all ties in nicely with the belief that Helon brought to the Ephorate new powers and responsibilities, giving them some degree of preponderance over even royalty. The matchmaking proved fruitful, and the focus of our next episode, Cleomenes, was born. Afterwards, Anaxandridas returned to his original wife and had three more sons with her, Dorius, Cleombrutus, and Leonidas I. And yes, we're going to be talking a whole lot about the last son in episodes to come. Plutarch recorded six maxims for Anaxandridas, and they are all very interesting. I'd encourage you all to check them out if you're so inclined. My pick of the bunch goes as follows. He said to the man who, while giving necessary information to the ephors, used more than enough words, Stranger, you meet the need, but at needless length. You have to love the Spartan love of brevity. Here it is axiomatic. Peloponnesian League aside, this joint rule encompassed the next two major events we are going to look at now. That is, alliance with Lydia and the invasion of Samos. Let's first turn our attention to Hellas' immediate eastern neighbour, 
the Lydian Empire. I'll forego as expansive a backstory for the Lydians because, unlike the Argives, they play merely a bit part in the story of Spartan history. It is, however, an important part because it shows how the power of the Spartans at the head of the Peloponnesian coalition had projected itself beyond the traditional homeland of the Greeks. In the Homeric epics, the people construed as the Meonians, allies of the Trojans, are widely understood to be one and the same as the Lydians. According to Herodotus, these people had a similar genesis to the Spartans, in that they too were founded by descendants of Heracles. They constructed their capital city, Sardis, which would remain the most important locale throughout the history of the Lydian Empire. A beautiful site situated in a valley, surrounded by rolling green hills and at the foot of Mount Tomolus. It lies inland from the central western Anatolian coast, about 70 kilometres east of the modern, sprawling Turkish city of Izmir, formerly Greek Smyrna. The empire's holdings encompassed, at its greatest extent, the entirety of the western third of modern Turkey, and had within its domain many of the mighty Greek Ionian cities, Ephesus, Miletus, and Halicarnassus too. The latter had the distinction of holding one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and was also the birthplace of our dear Uncle H. It was at its most wealthy and powerful during the reign of the empire's last ruler, King Croesus. Ruling from 585 to 546, his name was then, and is still now, proverbial with great riches. The saying, Riches Croesus, has long been used to denote someone exceedingly wealthy. His semi-legendary biography is thoroughly interesting. As I alluded to earlier, it's a real story of money can't buy you happiness. As despite all of his wealth, his story is one of tragedy, mishap, and cruel twists of fate. I could easily write an entire episode on this one figure, but I'll instead give you some of the highlights, or lowlights from the perspective of Croesus. Herodotus recites a tale of the king having given audience to the wandering Athenian lawgiver, Solon. The dates just fit, and it's entirely possible they did meet. Showing the Athenian his vast stores of gold and treasure, the king declared himself the happiest man alive. Solon rebuffed him, saying he could name three people off the top of his head who were happier. Talus of Athens was the first. He lived a life of full service, saw his children and then his grandchildren born and raised, finally dying in battle to protect the city of his birth. The next two were Argive brothers, named Cleobus and Beton. Their mother, a priestess of the goddess Hera, was attempting to take her cart into town to worship at the festival. Unable to find her oxen, and worried about being sacrilegious by her absence, the brothers instead yoked themselves and pulled their mother's cart the six miles to the sanctuary. Performing her rites to Hera, the mother asked the goddess to reward her boys for such filial piety and strength. In turn, the brothers fell asleep in the temple, and never woke up. Not much of a gift if you ask me, but it was significant enough that the people of Argos dedicated statues to the pair at Delphi. Amazingly, the statues were excavated in the 20th century dig at the site, and although they aren't inscribed with the names of the brothers, the artist's name is legible, one Polymedes of Argos. The style of the art can be dated to around the 580 BCE mark, which fits, so it is proposed that these two statues are indeed Cleobus and Biton. At any rate, Solon's point in noting these three as happier than Croesus was that only after one's death could a life of happiness truly be ascertained. Life was far too capricious, fate too fickle and fractious to predict such things prematurely. Croesus would learn this lesson the hard way throughout his reign. Another story recounted by Herodotus concerns the untimely death of the king's son, Atias. A Phrygian prince named Adrastus was exiled for accidentally killing his brother. He came to Lydia, where Croesus welcomed him to his court and showed him great favour. Later, in a dream, the king saw that his son would be killed by an iron spearhead. Frightened and ever wary of dreams, he forbade his son from leading or partaking in any of the military campaigns going on at the time. In an event straight out of mythology, a boar began to ravage the lands around Sardis. Believing it to be relatively safe due to boars not being able to throw spears, the king let his son, Atias, lead the hunting expedition and assigned Adrastus as his personal guard. Unfortunately for all parties concerned, a terrible accident occurred. While fighting the boar, Adrastus cast his spear, which flew wide of the mark, and impaled Prince Atias, killing him dead. Morose, Croesus blamed himself and forgave Adrastus. 
It was, however, for the exiled prince one count of manslaughter too many, and he committed suicide. When they invented tragedy, the Greeks did a very, very good job. Croesus mourned the loss of his son for two whole years until he was broken from his sorrow by news of the Persian Empire's expansion to the doorstep of his own kingdom. Wanting to stop this power in its tracks, but unsure of success, the king struck upon a plan to test the great oracles of the day. He sent an embassy to each of them, Delphi, Dodona, Ampharios, and Trophonius in Greece, and another to the oracle of Ammon in Libya. The test was simple. On the hundredth day after having left his capital, Sardis, the envoys were to consult their respective oracles and ask of them what Croesus was doing in that moment. The only utterance recorded, probably because it was the correct one, was from Delphi. The Pythia said the following in hexameter verse, I know the grains of the sand on the beach and measure of the sea. I understand the speech of the dumb and hear the voiceless. The smell has come to my sense of a hard-shelled tortoise boiling and bubbling with lamb's flesh in a bronze pot. The cauldron underneath is of bronze, and of bronze the lid too. Back in Lydia, Croesus received his envoys one by one with disappointment. None had been able to perceive what he was doing on the given day. None, that is, until the oracle from Delphi was read before the king, who stood there, mouth agape as he heard the words of the Pythia. On the day in question, the king had busied himself cooking up one of his, no doubt, numerous culinary delights. In this instance... It was a tortoise and lamb soup, cooked in his favourite bronze-lidded and bronzed cauldron. I'm not sure whether Croesus was some kind of ancient-day Jamie Oliver, but it was clear that the Delphic oracle could be trusted to speak prophetic truths. Seeking to win the favour of the Delphic sanctuary, the king offered a multitude of sacrifices to Apollo and, moreover, encouraged every citizen in his empire to do the same. He also made some donations to the site as well in the form of a 570-pound golden lion that rested on the portico of Apollo's temple there. He also adorned the temple's entrance with two giant mixing bowls, one of gold and one of silver, and these sat on either side. Herodotus tells us that the silver bowl alone held over 5,000 gallons of wine, that's over 20,000 litres for people like me who prefer metric. It would have made for one heck of a party and a subsequently Olympian hangover. These are just a few of the many treasures Croesus bequeathed to Delphi. Pausanias, who wrote some 600 years after Herodotus, claims to have seen some of the king's treasure there too. The Lydians, tasked with bringing the gifts to Delphi, were instructed to tell the priestess the following. Croesus, king of Lydia, and other nations, in the belief that this is the only true oracle in the world, has given you gifts such as your power of divination deserves, and now ask you if he should march against Persia and if it would be wise to seek an alliance. The oracle's advice was simple. If Croesus attacked the Persians, he would destroy a great empire, and also advised him to seek out the most powerful Greek state and come to an agreement with an alliance. The king immediately began inquiring amongst the Greeks as to who was the most powerful. Unsurprisingly, considering all we have learnt over the past couple of episodes, he was told that the Lacedaemonians of Sparta were the most mighty of all the Hellenes. Croesus sent an embassy to Laconia to instigate talks and secure an alliance. Hearing the request, the Spartans were extremely pleased with the offer and consented to an agreement of mutual aid and sent the Lydian king an assurance of their willingness to assist in any way possible. Here, Herodotus tells us that it wasn't the first time that Sparta and Croesus had dealings together. Prior to this point in time, the king had gifted the Lacedaemonians gold with which to face a statue of Apollo within Laconia. As for the alliance, which was readily accepted, to seal the deal, the people of Sparta sent with Croesus' diplomats a large and ornate bronze bowl capable of holding 2,500 gallons of wine. However, the bowl never made it to Sardis, as the ship carrying it was attacked and robbed by a fleet sailing out of Samos. They took the bowl and dedicated it within the Herion on the island. Either that, or the Spartans tasked with delivering it simply sold it to the Samians and concocted the story of its theft. Herodotus is fairly ambiguous, as usual, and simply finishes the story by saying, So much for the story of the bowl. It's an intriguing episode in Sparta's history for several reasons. Most obvious being that at this early period, mid-6th century, Sparta was already renowned as the most powerful city-state, not just within Greece by the Greeks, but also by neighbouring peoples in the Mediterranean. Not just that, but despite being primarily a Peloponnesian, land-based force, 
they were prepared to take on transmarine expeditions and effectively pursue alliances not just on their own behalf, but also on behalf of the Peloponnesian League and likely Hellas itself. Although in this instance the assistance they offered Croesus was a solitary ship carrying a large bowl, if things had gone differently for Lydia, who knows what type of help Sparta was prepared to send. This occurrence gives some excellent perspective to the final event on this timeline we'll look at shortly, that being Sparta's invasion of Samos. And no, it wasn't to get the bowl back. First, we'll finish off Croesus' story. Emboldened by both the alliance and the oracle's prediction of success against Persia, Croesus marched out to confront the armies of Cyrus. Unfortunately for the king, he was about to learn about the capricious and vague natures of Delphic oracles. You'd think the Spartans may have saw fit to inform him, having recently suffered defeat at the Battle of Fetters themselves, due in part to a falsely perceived oracle. Maybe they were embarrassed. Either way, the oracle was right. If Croesus attacked the Persians, he would indeed destroy a great empire. The great empire just happened to be his own. Beaten in a series of battles, the king was eventually besieged within his capital city of Sardis. The city ultimately succumbed to the designs of the Persians, and with its fall, Croesus found himself a prisoner of Cyrus. The Archimedid ruler promptly placed the defeated king on a pyre and sat back to watch him burn alive. As the flames licked at Croesus's feet, he cried out the name of Solon three times, in such anguish and agony that an intrigued Cyrus sent an interpreter to find out what Croesus was saying. Once told of the story of the Lydian's interview with the Athenian lawgiver Solon and his warning about the fickleness of good fortune, the Persian king had the flames doused, and a slightly well-done Croesus joined the retinue of Cyrus as a trusted advisor. Finally, for today, we'll turn to Sparta's actions on the island of Samos in the year 525 BCE. To understand this event as correctly as possible, it's necessary to delve into a fairly extensive background of the evidence we have to support Sparta going out of its way to assist some Samian exiles. A large-scale, transmarine expedition at this stage of Spartan history is tough to countenance unless we consider it in the light of a special relationship between the two places. Something to rule out immediately is the possibility, and it has been floated by some modern scholars, of Samos being a Spartan colony. To the best of our knowledge, and as we've seen, the only true colony of Sparta was Taurus, founded at an archaeologically supported date of 706 BCE. From that point, rather than look to plant colonies, the Lacedaemonians instead spread their wings and their influence throughout the Peloponnese. In Pausanias' account of the Second Mycenaean War, he lists Samos as an ally of Sparta. This is, according to most scholars, an anachronistic attempt to retroactively place the particularly strong classical relationship between the two cities as having come from a much earlier time. That doesn't mean we can rule it out entirely, and as we'll soon see, there is a strong possibility that relations between Sparta and Samos began at a very early point indeed. Before we get too far along the particulars, let's look at the event itself within the context of Herodotus' narration. The story itself revolves around the tyrant of Samos at the time, Polycrates, who ruled the island from around 545 to 522. He seized power after a time of civil strife, and quickly consolidated his hold on the reins of government. Raising an army of archers and 100 pentaconters, the main type of ship in pre-Trirene Greece, he turned the fortunes of the island around and established it as a true thalassocracy. In much the same way as we've seen with other tyrants, Polycrates was able to, with a singular vision, complete a great many things in a short time. He commissioned the construction of an aqueduct through Mount Castro, which backed onto his capital, modern-day Pythagorio and joined it with a spring on the other side. This gave the polis water security, essential during a siege. For the paltry sum of two euro, you can still enter this construction and marvel at the ingenuity of the Greeks today. It is a wonder of mathematics and engineering, having been dug from both sides to meet in the middle, a feat almost impossible without modern methods of tunnelling. The tyrant also organised the construction of a new temple to Hera, the Horion, which at 108 metres long and 55 metres wide, was one of the largest floor plans of any Greek temple in antiquity. Only its foundations are visible today. Last, but not least, significant rectifications of the capital's harbour were undertaken, with a deep-water mole of nearly 400 metres long being built. This mole is still used to this day to shelter ships within the harbour of Pythagoria. Now in the year 525, as an ally of Persia, his aid was requested in that empire's invasion of Egypt. Polycrates accordingly raised a fleet of around 40 triremes, 
perhaps the first time such were constructed, and crewed them with Samians, who were considered to be political rivals of his tyranny. Probably not the brightest idea Polycrates ever had, for no sooner had this fleet set sail, they turned back to attack Samos. A naval battle was fought, and Polycrates was the loser. The dissidents were, however, unable to press their advantage and take control of the island. Instead, they set sail for the Peloponnese, and requested an audience with the ruling body of Sparta. Herodotus, ever a fan of laconic brevity, tells us the following in regards to the proceedings. Quoting from Book 1 of the Histories, They procured an audience with the magistrates, and made a long speech to emphasise the urgency of their request. The Spartans, however, at this first sitting, answered the speech by saying that they had forgotten the beginning of it, and as such, could not understand the rest. So the Samians had to try again. At the second setting, they brought a bag, and merely remarked that the bag needed flour, to which the Spartans replied the word bag was superfluous. <laughs> Those guys. Now I have no idea what symbolism of the bag without flour meant, but the Spartan council granted their request and marshalled a force. Herodotus implies that the request was granted as the Spartans wanted revenge for the theft of the bowl, which perhaps occurred within the tyranny of Polycrates. The Corinthians too, by now a member of the Peloponnesian League, also agreed to send aid, and this too was put down, due to a need for revenge for a past grievance they had with the tyrant. Both reasons are possible. Corinth at this time was already a naval power of some repute, and Sparta the preeminent military force. It's likely that the force of Spartan soldiers used Corinthian warships to travel to Samos. Herodotus goes on to say that the Lacedaemonians arrived with a large force on Samos. It suggested around 2,000 homoioi and perioikoi, and immediately began to besiege the city. They came against the western wall of its defences and attempted to breach them. Polycrates sent his forces out in a sally, and there was a general conflict beneath the walls for some time. Eventually, the invaders got the upper hand and drove the enemy before them back through the gates and into the city. The historian suggests that if the Lacedaemonians all had the courage and vigour of two of their own, Archaeus and Lycopes, then Samos would have fallen there and then. For these two chased the fleeing force back within the city, whereupon the gates were shut behind them and they were struck down, taking many of the enemy with them. It simply wasn't to be for the Spartans, and after a siege of 40 days, they resolved to return to the Peloponnese. Either due to lack of supplies, willpower, or as Herodotus relates in dubious fashion, because they were bribed by Polycrates. This last one is unlikely, and the historian called it a foolish story as well. The Aegean is a fickle body of water, even at the best of times, and unless the Spartans were prepared to wait out a winter on a foreign and hostile place, the duration of any siege, so far from home, would necessarily be a short one. Nevertheless, Polycrates and his tyranny met a sticky end only a few years later, when he decided to attack the Persian-controlled city of Magnesia, nearby to Ephesus. He was captured there, impaled, and then crucified. It's an amazing tale, and one that truly shows how Spartan ambitions had changed from simply regional hegemony to taking an interest in the affairs of Greek cities far removed from their own domain. But why? Let's now look at the evidence for the special relationship between Sparta and Samos I mentioned earlier. First, archaeologically speaking, there is much to suggest that trade between Sparta and the island was a significant occurrence, above and beyond what could be considered normal for the day. Laconian pottery was of extremely high quality and in demand from around 650 to 550 BCE mark. There was a survey conducted last century of all the sites around the Mediterranean within which Laconian ware was discovered. This encompassed some 50 different sites outside of Laconia, extending from northeast Spain to Syria. Of the 360 pieces catalogued, some 28% of them were found on Samos, nearly all dedicated to Hera within the Herion complex. In and of itself, this isn't hugely telling, save for the fact that the most popular and easiest to attain pottery of the day was by far the Corinthian variety. But on Samos, unlike anywhere else outside of Laconia, Spartan pottery is in greater concentration than its Corinthian counterpart. Much of it too was dedicated to individual graves. This suggests that the items were commissioned specifically, or at the very least that there were personal relationships between certain elite Samians and Spartans. Trade as we perceive its meaning today wasn't exactly the same thing in archaic Greece. Rather than decisions for mutual exchange happening on the level of the state, they were decided on the level of private citizens and their families. Individuals operated the manufacturing process, be it earthenware or wine, and passed on their goods to other groups of individuals, 
These had relationships, or xenia, with families and other poleus, and the goods were moved accordingly. It wasn't this way that commerce was decided, through guest friendship ties. Taking liberties with the Second Mycenaean War narrative, what if some of the alleged Samians who joined the Spartans made familial bonds with some of their allies, tied together through Xenia? After the war, they went their respective ways, but stayed in touch through the trade of goods. The earliest evidence for Laconian wear on Samos is from at least the first quarter of the 7th century, maybe a little later, but certainly contemporary with any Second Mycenaean War. Indeed, these fragments of a cauldron are the second earliest piece of such pottery found anywhere outside of the Peloponnese. Another interesting point relates to the person of Archaeus, who Herodotus tells us died fighting within Samos along with his friend Lycopis. The historian relates having met this man's grandson, also named Archaeus, on one of his trips to Sparta within the village of Petana. This younger Archaeus informed Herodotus that his father was named Samios, literally the Samian. And following Greek naming protocols, it is possible that the older Archaeus had a father named Samios as well. The Xenia relations between Greeks is a phenomenon that dates well back into Homeric times. These foreign relationships were often formalised within the state. The position of Proxenia was endorsed by the relevant ruling body, but the position was likely hereditary. A polis could have many Proxenia, each responsible for the maintenance of the relationship between theirs and another polis. It's plausible that this Archaeus was the proxenia of Sparto-Samos relationships, a title he inherited from his father, Samios, and one passed on after his death to his son, also called Samios. It is even possible that this position was first instituted in the aftermath of Samian aid to the Spartans during the Second Mycenaean War. We have nothing concrete to support that, of course, but it plays into the narrative very nicely indeed, and is at least worthy of reasonable consideration. In the 5th century, there is plenty of evidence for the good relationship between Sparta and Samos, even despite the island being part of the Athenian-led and thoroughly anti-Spartan Dalian League. One example occurred in the year 441 BCE, when a Peloponnesian League conference was held. The details of what this council's motives were aren't entirely clear, but we can infer much by events occurring in that time frame. Sparta and Athens had been involved in a cold, sometimes warm, war for much of the middle part of the 5th century. They'd formalised a peace agreement in 446. Councils of the Peloponnesian League were called for only one of two reasons, peace or war. As peace was already in effect, the only reason could be that of war. In 441 BCE, Samos had broken its Delian League requirements by attacking another League member in Miletus. Athens, under the leadership of Pericles, sailed to Samos, installed a democracy-style government, and banished some of the leading oligarchs. That these oligarchs would turn to Sparta, as the exiles did in 525, makes sense and explains the calling of the Peloponnesian League Council in 441. The reason must have been to discuss assisting the Samians in recovering their island. It didn't eventuate in this instance. Another example involves the aftermath of the Sicilian disaster of 413. Samos, was the first League member to abandon Athens and immediately joined Sparta. Samian spent the next eight years in what turned out to be a bloody, though fruitless, revolt. I think if we take an all-encompassing view of the events of 525, we can see three possible and perhaps collaborative reasons for the Spartan assistance of the Samian exiles. The first was likely the result of anti-Persian sentiment that was slowly taking root at this time. Cleomenes really ratcheted that up in the coming generation, and it reached a peak in the 480s. Secondly, there was surely some form of strong Xenia ties between leading families in the two cities, as has been demonstrated. This can't be understated in its importance. And lastly, as we have seen numerous times previous, Sparta had a penchant for toppling tyrants. Although they were ultimately unsuccessful this time, the thought of bringing the cauldron-stealing Polycrates down surely weighed on the Laconian mindset too. That brings us to the end of this episode, and what a mammoth task it was. I really hope you'd enjoyed it, and it wasn't too heavy on the info. It was one of the toughest stories to put together as of yet. Secure in its regional power, Sparta is now prepared to venture outside of the Peloponnese, and in a sense, is acting as the general of Greek foreign policy. In the year following the Samos affair, King Anaxandridas would die, and his eldest son, Cleomenes, ascended the Argead throne. He was the most powerful Spartan king to rule up until that point, and despite the checks and balances placed on regal authority within the city, 
he ran roughshod over them all, Europontid king, Gerusia, and Ephorit alike. His reign is the story of Sparta in the lead-up to the Greco-Persian Wars, and it will be the sole focus of our next instalment. So, it is with great pleasure that I extend to you all an invitation to join me on Sunday, April the 10th, for episode 33, Cleomenian Sparta. Until then, dear listeners, take good care and speak soon. If you'd like to contribute to the show, please head over to www.spartanhistorypodcast.com Well, you'll see on the home page buttons for Buy Me A Coffee and PayPal. Alternatively, you can go to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash Spartan History or www.paypal.me forward slash Spartan History. You can find me on Twitter at Spartan underscore History and on Facebook too at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your pods from and leave a review. See you next time.